How have you seen God work this past week? Have you noticed? Have you noticed anything that God is doing in your world, in your life? It's so easy to miss God, especially when we aren't looking for God. So we've been praying this prayer throughout this series, and I invite you, if you haven't, to join in this week in your daily life to pray this prayer. God, help us dare to imagine what you can do. And then God, give us the eyes, give us the faith to see when you do it. It's this prayer for spiritual awareness, for open eyes to see what God is doing. Because the truth is, for most of us, we only expect God to do something when we are in desperation and we call out to him. God, make my life better. God, heal my sickness. God, take care of my friend. And all of that is good. But we sometimes look at the work of God in the world as though he is on our agenda. We're not on his. Just imagine for a moment if we just let God be God and we just watched in amazement. And so pray this prayer and open your eyes to see what God is doing. Jesus often said, watch and pray. But I think it's also important that we pray and watch. Watch what God is up to and join him in this world as he restores, as he makes things new, as his kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven. Glad you're here today. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 9. That will be our text today as we continue in this series, Acts chapter 9. Have you ever thought that something was true and then you acted upon that assumption or that belief that it was true only to find out later that it wasn't true? And then you have to either double down and sort of try to save face or you feel foolish and embarrassed and you just sort of, you know, go away into the sunset. We all probably know what that feels like. In Devon, England, there was a man named Neil who discovered an owl in his garden out back. And so every night, virtually every night, he would go out on the back patio and he would hoot to the owl. Hoot. Hoot. And sure enough, the owl would hoot back. Hoot, hoot. You see, I had to change them up so it wasn't the same hoot. That's the owl's hoot. Hoot, hoot. And this guy loved it. And so he would do it virtually every night. He would go out and he would hoot to the owl. And the owl would hoot back night after night, week after week, month after month. It, it meant so much to him, he would actually log his correspondence with the owl, his conversations with the owl. And one day, his wife was talking to a neighbor and she said that her husband Fred also went on the back porch some of you see where this is going already he also went on the back porch and he called out to the owl hoot hoot and that's when the two ladies put it all together that for nearly a year their husbands were hooting at each other the owl was not involved at all. In fact, he was probably inviting his owl friends over to say, get a load of these guys, listen to this. <laughs> that story reminds me of something, something that is so important, something we all know, but something we need to hear, and that is that your perception of reality shapes what you do. How you see the world informs how you live in the world. 
And that's okay when our perception of reality actually matches reality. But what about when it doesn't? What about when we're acting upon and living based upon something that is not true? You see, whether or not your perception of reality is accurate or not is extremely important. There may be an owl hooting back. There may not be. So as we continue in this series, immeasurably more, looking at some of the stories in the first part of Acts, today we're going to look at someone's incredible story. It is someone who had a perception of reality that certainly shaped what he did. But it was a perception that was not accurate. You see, his perception of reality was not, in fact, reality. And because his view of truth was mistaken, his entire life was misguided. But one day, a specific encounter, an extraordinary encounter, changed everything, <clears throat> everything. And not just realigning his perspective on reality, but it changed his entire life. It changed his identity. It changed his purpose. It changed his sense of calling where he found meaning. And not only did it change his life, but because of the way God used him, it changed the lives, it changed the eternities of virtually millions others. We see the dramatic story of Saul, who later became Paul, in Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So if you don't know anything else about this man named Saul, who maybe in your mind he's already Paul, but right now he's Saul, and you don't know anything else, what is your first impression of this man? He's horrible. He's an enemy of God. He's awful. He's going to this city, to this place, to find Christians and to arrest them and to hurt them, to punish them. He is working against what God is trying to do. He might as well be holding a pitchfork and have a tail and horned ears, right? He is evil. But guess what? He wasn't evil, at least not to those around him. He was a religious leader, not a religious fanatic. He was well-respected, well-trained. He was a man of status, a man of influence. And in his mind and in the minds of his peers... Saul was doing good, not evil. He was defending truth. He was contending for the faith. He was keeping the commands of God. He was preserving the way of God. He was the guardian of all that was true and right and holy. Did you notice in the text how the early Christians referred to themselves? The way. That's interesting for many reasons, but one of the reasons it's interesting is because in this day and time, for Orthodox Jews, they followed the law of God, especially the religious elite. It was important for them to follow the law of God, but for them, the law of God was not just the law of Moses. It was the tradition of the elders, these oral traditions that were passed down, and they elevated them in status, and they became, along with Moses' law, the law of God. And there was a word, a Hebrew word, 
for these traditions, halakha. And this word literally meant the walkings. Another way to say it is the way. So it's no wonder, it's no surprise that Saul, this religious elite, this well-trained Pharisee, this man of God in his own eyes, would be threatened by, first of all, someone who claimed to be the Messiah and said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. That no one could come to the Father except through him, and not only this guy, but people who were following him who now claim to also be part of the way. How could they have the way? How could he be the way? I have the way. And our ways are different, and I know they are wrong because my way is the only way. My way is the right way. He is not the true Messiah. Isn't it scary sometimes how we can drift into a similar mindset? In his pre-Paul state, Saul was so confident in his ability to see things as they truly were, especially as it related to how we connect and honor God and how we become righteous. He was so dogmatic. He was so insistent, so immovable. When it came to what he knew to be true and how he lived his life, he was certain that he was right and everyone else was wrong. But the truth is, he was wrong. He was taking a stand for God, but he completely missed what God was doing. Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was stubbornness. Maybe it was socialization, the way he was brought up. Maybe it was something else, arrogance. We don't know, but there was something that caused him to be blind to the reality of Jesus Christ. And that reminds us something that's very important, and that is this. Strong convictions, as good as they are, they are not enough if we miss Jesus. That was true for Saul. That is true for us. Saul needed Jesus. He needed to see Jesus, to truly encounter the Son of God, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Saul needed to see him. And in one miraculous moment, he did. He saw Jesus, and everything changed. Saul was traveling down, to a, road, down a road to Damascus, this town, and, and he had permission from the higher-ups to find, to hunt down any Christians who probably had left Jerusalem because persecution had become so intense. And Saul was going to find them and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they would meet their fate, probably death. But on the way, we see that God had different plans. Something extraordinary happened. A bright light, the text says, flashed all around him, and a voice from heaven called him out by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Let's pick up the story in the text, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. (laughs) I guess voices from heaven don't mess around with small talk. He got straight to it. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. It's no mistake that it's Saul's eyesight that's affected here. You see, Saul thought he could see clearly, and then Jesus blinded him. Sometimes changing the way we see, changing the way we understand, changing our perception of reality, sometimes that is difficult. Paradigm shifts don't happen overnight. And sometimes we need something shocking, something to turn our world upside down so that we can see the world differently. Saul would need some time, some time alone with his thoughts, and regrets, some time alone with God, he would need some time for repentance, for realignment. Meanwhile, God was appearing to another man in the city, a man named Ananias, and he was telling him to go and find Saul and help him, because Saul was going to be his chosen instrument to take the good news of Jesus to the world. Well, as you can imagine, Ananias was not too excited about this assignment. God, don't you know this guy? Surely not Saul. That guy is a wrecking ball. Everywhere he goes, he just just does damage. He is destroying the church. He is killing followers of Jesus. Why do you want me to go to him? I don't think that's safe. And finally, after some convincing, Ananias goes, and he finds Saul. And the text says he places his hands on him and I I wonder how difficult that must have been and maybe he wanted to slide his hands up to his neck and you know go ahead and take care of it right there but he puts his hands on him as if to bless him not from his own source of power but as a messenger from God and he tells him God is going to give you the Holy Spirit and God has a job for you a calling on your life And the text says that as he gets up, something like scales fall from his eyes. And Saul can see. He can finally see. He can really see. He can see Jesus for who he actually is. Saul was baptized. He ate some food. He gained some strength because he had important work to do. Remember what we said, our perception shapes what we do. Our perception of reality informs how we live, and that was certainly the case for Saul. He had a much clearer vision of reality, and that vision made all the difference. He had encountered Jesus in a personal and a powerful way, and it changed his life. It changed his purpose. It changed everything about him. Verse 20, At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What do we see? We see complete transformation A 180-degree turn. Paul's story, Saul's story, 
isn't finished until God has the final word. And neither is yours. And neither is that person in your life who you think is your greatest enemy. Nor the person that you pray about every night and worry about even more. Nor is the story of the person who just always seems to cause problems for you. Nor is that prodigal child who's in a far off land who needs a wake up call to come home. We've been talking about how God works in us and around us during this series. I believe one of the most powerful, one of the most impactful, one of the most clear ways that God works in our world is by changing lives, by life transformation. You know it's true because God has changed your life. Think about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever thought about what your life would be like without Jesus? It's kind of an interesting exercise. I would challenge you to do that. Just think about how your life would be different if Jesus was not a part of your life. What would it look like? Where would you be? Who would you be with? How would you be as a, as a father or a husband or a wife and a mother? How would you be as a friend? What would your priorities be? What would your pursuits be? If you're totally honest, if with Jesus not in your life, what would your life look like? Just imagine the worst parts of you running unimpeded, unrestrained, sarcasm, selfishness, bitterness, anger, lust, pride, ego, on and on. It's scary to think about the worst version of ourselves, isn't it? And yet it's a good reminder for us to know that Jesus makes all the difference. That Christ makes all the difference in our lives. That becomes our story. That becomes our testimony. That certainly became Saul's story and his testimony. In fact, that's the story he would tell as he shared the gospel. We have his conversion story, not just here in Acts chapter 9, but in chapter 22 and chapter 26. You see, that's what Saul shared with people. Let me tell you the difference Jesus has made in my life. Let me tell you about my encounter with the risen Savior. That should be our testimony. That should be our story as well. It was Saul who became Paul who wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If anyone knew, it was Saul who knew what it meant to go from were, this is what some of you were, to are. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. Transformation. So a couple of takeaways for us as we consider Saul's story. Number one, God can change your life. God can change your life. He can change you. Well, how does, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, change only happens when we encounter Jesus in a personal and a powerful way. N.T. Wright said this. He said, everything that Saul of Tarsus said and did from that moment on 
and particularly everything that he wrote flowed, listen to this, flowed from that sudden, shocking seeing of Jesus. I like the way he says that. The sudden, shocking seeing of Jesus. It changed everything. And that's where change happens for you. Paul would go on when he defended his, his status as an apostle. He would go on to say that I saw Jesus. He would write that in his letters. I saw Jesus. That's what made all the difference. I encountered Jesus in a personal and a powerful way. Real transformation, it doesn't come from religion. Real transformation doesn't come from a a set of rules, a list of guidelines. As important as doctrine is, doctrine is not what changes a person's heart and life. Only a personal encounter with Jesus Christ will bring about lasting transformation. We all come to Jesus on different paths, don't we? Blake was sort of talking about that earlier. Some, like Saul, have a Damascus Road experience. I mean, it's almost like the lights and the sounds and the voice from heaven. It's so dramatic, there's a 180-degree turn. Other people, their, their path to Jesus is more, more gradual, more steady. Maybe growing up knowing and learning and loving Jesus. One of those is not more significant than the other. If you think your encounter with Jesus doesn't have the dramatic flair that you hear about from other people's testimonies, it doesn't invalidate your story. Our roads to Damascus are all different. Our paths to Jesus are not the same. It's not the path to Jesus, it's Jesus himself that makes all the difference. And whatever gets us to Jesus, here's the truth, the path from Jesus, it looks the same for all of us. Denying self, taking up our cross, and following him. Like it did for Saul, who became Paul, that encounter, that is the defining moment that gives our life purpose, and passion and genuine peace. Please know that God can change your life. If you're looking, if you're hungering for something new, something different, it can only come from him. Number two, just as God can change your life, God can change the lives of other people. That's important for us to hear. It's important for us to know because we have a tendency to give up on people. They're a lost cause. There's no way they can change. No one's story is finished until God gets the final word. You can't change someone else. As much as you may want to, you can't change the heart of your spouse. You can't change the actions of your ex-spouse. You can't make that coworker easier to work with or more gracious. You can't bring that wayward child back to church, back to God. You can't do it, but God can. And what you can do is you can be the Ananias to the Saul's in your life. 
Do you remember Ananias? He first thought that real change was impossible with Saul. When God said, you go and help him, he was like, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is good. There's no way that guy is changing. I know that guy. He is an enemy of what we are doing. How many times do we allow our biases and our prejudices and our preconceived ideas about other people keep us from being the Ananias that they need? We ask, how could they change? It's impossible. It's unimaginable. And somehow we forget that God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Even in the lives of the people around you. It doesn't mean God removes free will. It doesn't mean he takes choice out of it. I suppose Saul could have chosen after the bright lights, after the voice from heaven. I assume he could have chosen, eh, that's just a fluke. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But he didn't. So pray that God will invade that other person's life in such a way that is so compelling that their only choice will be to surrender to Jesus, to the calling of God on their life. And you be the Ananias that he or she needs. Remember, their story isn't finished until God has the final word. And so Paul would say this about his own life, 1 Timothy chapter 1, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What does he say made all the difference in his life? The mercy of God, the grace of God, the faith, the love that comes from Christ. That's where real change happens. And that's what the mercy and the grace of our Lord can do. It can cut through the hardest of hearts It can open the most blind eyes. It is the only thing that can truly bring change. It's a story I'll never forget. It's a story that you know pieces of because I've shared parts of the story. My role in the story began right up there in that baptistry. I got a call from from my friend who now has gone on to be with the Lord Gilbert Hill. He said, Randy, I need some help baptizing a guy named Jack. I said, I'm there. Let's do it. I had no idea what I was getting into. He tried to give me a little bit of a warning, but I had no idea. So Jack was a large man, quite frail, and quite elderly. And he couldn't move very well. He couldn't see, and he didn't say much. And so we wheeled his wheelchair to the edge of the baptistry. And that's when I realized we're going to be here a while. And it wasn't just Gil and me. We had two or three other guys both in and outside of the baptistry to assist. And we had to pick him up out of his chair. And we had to literally pick up every step, every foot, and put it on the next step. But as soon as we'd get close to that next step... He couldn't handle it, and so he would pull that foot back. And we would try it again. We would brace him from all sides, and we would try to pick his foot up and put it on that step, and he would pull it back. 
And that was one of those moments where I thought, maybe sprinkling is not such a bad thing. I mean, do we really have to fully immerse? Forgive me, I, you know. We did that step by step. We finally got him into the water. And in the water is where he confessed his belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And Gilbert baptized him. And Jack must have had a lot of sins because Gilbert, he held him under for quite a while. A little longer than normal, I felt like. I mean, we wanted Jack to go to heaven, but not straight to heaven. (laughs) Gilbert finally let him up. Big gasp of air. And then we had the job of getting him back up the steps to his wheelchair. And so we did. We helped him every step of the way. Finally, I remember, finally got him in his chair. And as he plopped down into that chair, and that wheelchair made that sound, that's the sound all of us made. We just went, and we literally, we just stood either inside or outside the baptistry, wherever we were, we just stood there and just sort of took a moment to recover. We were in that baptistry for over an hour, baptizing Jack. Little did I know at that time that I would be helping bury him again in just a few short months. This time not in water, this would be his final burial. And it's probably a story for another time, but I've got to tell you, it was the strangest funeral I've ever been a part of. But let me back up a minute and tell you how we got there. You see, Gilbert used to work with Jack back in their younger days. And Gilbert said that Jack was a great employee, but no one in the company liked him. Gil said, and his son Mike, who also worked with him, said that he, Jack, was mean, he was selfish, he only cared about himself, but he was good at his job. And he won all the sales awards and all the incentive trips. He was a tremendous success. But he was, by all accounts, a horrible husband and father. At that strange funeral, I'm not exaggerating, there were about 10 people there, including his two daughters, who by that time had made some sort of peace with him, but who still bore the scars. I mean, you could hear them, you could see them, the scars of years of Jack's selfishness and his neglect to his family. It was so sad. You see, Jack had tunnel vision. He could only see what was important to him, and what was important to him was his career and money and success. Nothing else. Speaking of vision, he had lost his vision in one eye. For as long as Gilbert knew him, Jack couldn't see out of one eye. And about two years before I was introduced to Jack, his wife had passed away, but he was at home one day by himself, and he stumbled and he fell. And when he fell, he hit the china cabinet, the corner of the china cabinet, and he didn't bruise his arm, he didn't break his leg. There was one part of his body that hit the corner of that china cabinet, and it was the eye socket of his good eye. And as it made contact with that, eye, with that china cabinet, it did damage. And now Jack couldn't see out of either eye. He was completely blind. Because he couldn't really take care of himself, he moved into a, an assisted living facility. 
And that's where Gilbert sort of re-entered his life. He felt sorry for Jack. He knew Jack was all alone. Even though he knew that Jack was a mean, selfish guy, God was working on Gil's heart. And he realized that he needed to be the Ananias to that man, Jack. And so he would go visit him in that assisted living facility. And of course, Jack had no visitors, and so he loved when Gil would come by. And Gil said, hey, if I'm going to visit you, then I'm going to read the Bible to you. That's the deal. Jack said, that's fine. And so that's what Gilbert did. Every week, sometimes multiple times a week, he would go see Jack, and he would read the New Testament to him. And finally, after a long time, one day, Jack said, Gil, I want to be a Christian. I need to be baptized. And that's when I got the call. And that's when we ended up in the baptistry. I rarely read Saul's conversion story without thinking about Jack. You see, for Saul, it took being blind to learn how to see. For Jack, it took being blind to learn how to see, to really see, to see Jesus for who he really, truly is. And anyone who knew Jack They knew that it completely changed his life, that before he became a Christian was so much different than after he became a Christian. His time of life was short after that, but his quality of life was something that he had never experienced before. Our stories are not finished until God has the final word. And what can God do? He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So your story isn't done either. What are you doing to let God write your story? How you need to respond to an encounter with truth, the encounter that you have with Jesus. How do you need to respond? I encourage you to do that today. Don't wait. Maybe it's like Saul to surrender your will, surrender your life, to claim Jesus as Lord, to be baptized, to receive the Holy Spirit, to change the purpose and the path of your life. Maybe that's what you need to do as you respond. Or maybe you need to make some changes in your life. Maybe you have had tunnel vision. You've been blinded to Jesus. You need to open your eyes. If we can help you do that, let us do that. Let us encourage you. Let us pray for you. Let us support you. Maybe you need to be the Ananias to a Saul that's in your life. Don't ignore the call of God on your life to go help, even when it seems improbable, impossible. What's your response? In just a minute, we're going to stand up. A couple of our shepherds and their wives are going to head to the parlor. It's a little room right back here in this hallway. You can go there, just exit these doors, find them there. They'll encourage you, they'll pray for you. If you need to talk to someone, let them shepherd you. They want to do that. Or you can come down to the front and we as a congregation, as a church family, will lift you up in prayer. If you're ready to give your life to Jesus today, to be baptized into Christ, don't wait. Let's stand and sing.